Welcome to episode 110 of the Grace Enough podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum, and this week I sit down with Caroline Bailey to talk about becoming barren at age 11 after she experienced a life-threatening infection that led to a hysterectomy. We discuss the impact knowing she would never birth children had on her identity and thought life as an adolescent through early adulthood. We also dive into her journey with foster parenting, adopting three children, and working in child welfare for the last 20 years. So if you know someone who is barren, struggling with infertility, fosters children, has adopted children, or works in the child welfare system, will you share this episode with them via text message, email, or on your social media? I believe it will encourage them no matter where they are on their journey. Let's drop into this week's conversation with Caroline Bailey from Barren to Blessed. Good morning, Caroline. Welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. Good morning. Thank you for being here today. Go ahead to get us started. Introduce yourself and your family and tell everybody a little bit about what you do. Okay. So my husband's name is Bruce and we've been married. We'll, we'll be celebrating our 20 year um, wedding anniversary in July of this year. Um, we have three children. Um, we have two middle schoolers. Um, so pray for us right there. That's right. <laughs> um, a third grader. Um, I have worked in child welfare since 2001. Um, prior to that, I worked with senior services. So I went from one end of the spectrum to the other, yeah. um, and we live in Southwest Missouri, and yeah, that's basically us. Yeah, well, today we're going to talk a little bit about your story and just kind of how you ended up with the three kids that you have, because they are not biological, and so at age 11, a defining event took place in your life. Will you share about that portion of your childhood, the illness that you experienced, and just a little bit about what happened? So it kind of really sort of started back at age two. Uh, okay. I, my appendix ruptured and it sent um, infection um, throughout my body. And so, you know, I survived it, but they had to do a lot of cleaning up in my abdominal area, obviously. You know, at that time, the doctor came out and said, she's going to be fine, but she may have problems with her period when she gets older, hmm. which, you know, my mom, she's like, I don't know why I didn't question him. She just, she just didn't question him about it. So I went on with life. Um, I had a few other illnesses, but then at the age of 11, um, I went to school one morning and started getting sick at school. My teacher noticed I sort of just stopped talking, which is very unusual for me. <laughs> Became extremely pale to the point to where he took me to the nurse's office. Like some, something was definitely wrong with me. So my mom took me to the doctor and they said it was some sort of stomach bug. My doctor wasn't in at the time. It was an intern that, that I saw um, or a resident, whatever. They're yeah, called. Um, right. And my mom pushed back and said, no, this is not normal. This is not the normal stomach bug. She is, she, you know, her gut instinct, her, her mom instinct kicked in. And so she convinced this resident to send me over to the lab for blood work. And doing that really was one part of saving my life because my blood work came back so off the charts that they immediately hospitalized me. I was in the hospital for about a week and they could not, did not know what was going on. I was having severe abdominal pains extremely high fevers. Honestly, I was dying. 
is what was happening. I was in the dying process. And finally, my pediatrician came back into town and read my chart. He was on vacation, read my chart and immediately came at the hospital and said, there's, we've, we're going to, we're going to have to figure out what this is, obviously. And where my pain was located was my lower sort of abdomen area. Mm-hmm. So he um, called in a, an OBGYN who did some exams on me and did exploratory surgery. And when they opened me up, my uterus was completely full of infection. Um, My right ovary, my fallopian tubes were completely full of infection. The infection was leaking into my bladder and was starting to get throughout all of my abdominal area. Wow. So it was at that moment that they realized that they had to do a hysterectomy on me because my uterus was so expanded with infection that if it would have ruptured, it would have killed me instantly. Mm-hmm. So they had to take it out and they had to take out my right ovary and my fallopian tubes. And then of course, spend about two hours washing the rest of my body to make sure that they got all of the infection. What I've been told is that when they did my, the doctor did my appendect- appendectomy when I was two, that he may have poked, not on purpose, of course, uh, a fallopian tube, mm. just such a a small little hole that the bacterium got in there. So the bacteria at the time uh, was pretty unknown. I was only the second case in the United States to even have this bacteria. And now it's more common. It's when you hear about people um, getting, going septic, things like that. It's, it's right. Bactroidus fragilis is what it's called. And I mean, they, they had to do it or else I would have lost my yeah. life. Well, so did you have no signs before that from like age two until 11, just all of a sudden, like once it hit, it hit? Yes, nothing. I had, um, what's what's even stranger is I actually at age seven, so at two was my appendix ruptured and came out. At age seven, I had intestinal adhesions that I had to have operated on and there was nothing going on there that they saw either. So it wasn't like anything was inflamed in that area. Wow. So what the doctor described to me is the bacterium had formed like a, a cyst, basically it kind of balled itself up. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the weekend before this happened, I had spent the weekend at my uncle's farm. He, he owned a big pig farm okay. and I took a friend with me and we had carried, it sounds horrible. We carried a, a piece of a tombstone that we found on his property. I know that's, I would never do that now as an adult, as, as kids, you know, you oh, think. Are you, a girl, I grew up in the country. We did the craziest <laughs> stuff. That does not sound weird to me at all. It sounds so disrespectful. <laughs> I just thought it was cool. Anyway, um, I had carried it on my right side, on my right hip. And so they're thinking that maybe the pressure from that is what oh, caused, caused it to it like, to worse. Isn't that so interesting? Well, yeah. so what did it look like? You, you have this surgery. Did you have to go on a lot of uh, medication after that to make sure that your body, you know, what was the recovery process like in those first few months? Yeah. So I was in the hospital for close to a month and I was on, um, extremely high doses of antibiotics. The, um, multiple insurance companies had told my parents that there was the highest dose of, an- of antibiotic they've ever seen any child ever be on. Then this, this was in 1983. Right. So mind you, keep in context to the, the time period this was in. So I, I was in the hospital for close to a month. And then my recovery from the hospital was at home for another, so probably see, it would have been six to nine weeks, maybe. Okay. So I pretty much missed the first half of the school year of All my right. sixth grade year. Um, yeah, I had to go to the doctor to the OBGYN, like all of the time I had to be on medications. He had to check to make sure that I was okay. They had warned my parents. They think that they got it all, but they weren't sure. And so 
at any point it could come back. Yeah. I mean, I was, I had lost a, a lot of weight. Yeah. Um, I had to have multiple units of blood given to me. Um, it was, it was a very serious, serious illness for sure. Well, and I just think about anybody who's listening, who knows what it's like to be a middle schooler, um, to have middle schoolers, to be around middle schoolers. It's a really awkward phase of life where you're just really not sure about yourself in the best of circumstances. And so, you know, you were pretty much aware quickly that you would never have biological children, but how did some of those ideas kind of manifest themselves as a tween girl in your thoughts and, you know, how you related to other people? Um, And then we'll kind of get into how your faith comes into that in a little bit. Um, You know, I knew immediately and I, I remember, I mean, I can see it in my head right here. You know, one thing about traumatic medical, I can only speak to this from my experience from like traumatic medical illnesses as a child is that I, I don't remember every single part of it. I remember Mm -hmm. just like images from it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Um, So I, my doctor who is still my doctor, by the way, um, and yeah. Um, and my dad were standing over me and they said, you know, you, you will always be able to make love, but you'll never be able to have children, wow. which I know seems like a really strange thing to say to 11 year old. But again, the context 1983 and mm. I wasn't five, I was 11. We were learning about stuff like that in school anyway. Yeah. And so I knew from the very minute I woke up from surgery that I couldn't have kids Mm. Um, what that looked like. I mean, it didn't, I didn't understand fully the impact of it because again, I was only 11, but I immediately started to internalize feeling lesser than Mm -hmm. you wouldn't have known that about me if you knew me back then. Cause I was, as soon as I was cleared and healthy enough, I I was a a competitive dancer. I got back to dancing. I performed in theater productions, went on to middle school. I was a cheerleader. Like I was very outgoing. I made good grades. Like you would not know how much I was really struggling internally, which I think a lot of middle schoolers are. Yes. I know it's Uh, hard to know, like how much of that is from what you experienced and how much of that is you would have struggled anyways. It just may have looked different. Yeah. I think for me, even if it was normal, which I'm sure some of it was, I think though, I connected it to the fact that I couldn't have kids. So what that looked like was, well, you know, God must've, God must've left me on this from this miracle because he knew I'd make a bad mom. Or um, maybe I should have been born a boy, you know, it was completely um, focused on, I I must've done something wrong Yeah, because up until this point, other than, you know, a few hiccups health wise, you know, I had had a great childhood. I mean, my parents have been married for over 50 years. Yeah. Was in dancing and had a lot of friends and active. And so this was so completely out of the blue for this to happen, um, which I know a lot of people say that about a lot of illnesses. But so for me as an adolescent, it, it just, I knew I was going to have to face it eventually, Right. but I just kept pushing it down. I just kept pushing it down, you know? Well, and did you grow up, you grew up in a a healthy family? Was it a family of faith? Were your parents Christians? I mean, how did, how was God in the picture of your life at that time in middle school? So we, I did grow up um, in a Christian family and my dad, 
he was also a professional fisherman. So he was gone a lot on the weekends. Mm-hmm. So really, it's just my mom and I going to church. But my parents were not the type that was like, every time the doors open, we're there, you right. know? Mm-hmm. And they were pretty open-minded about a lot of things. So definitely grew up with a strong faith, but I was not part of a really super fundamental family. Um, I was allowed to express myself, to question things, you know? So um, great. Yes. And I had accepted Jesus at the age of nine. Um, and was baptized and I just had this like super, you know, lovey dovey feeling about him, Mm -hmm. about God until my hysterectomy. And then all of a Mm. sudden became, Oh, wait a minute. You know, the wrestling begins. Why did I fall out of his favor? You know, like, and I remember Mm. thinking things like, well, maybe God doesn't love me as much as I thought he did. Oh Yeah. So and I think my, my family struggled with that as well. Um, I can tell you, we did not go to church as much after that. Hmm. Um, some of that too, is because my mom was also hearing things from people that did not soothe her soul. Um, and really not too many people from the church reached out to her at that time either. It was just so awkward, I think is the word to use that people did not know what to say to a parent whose daughter had just had a hysterectomy when she was 11. You know, I hadn't started my period yet. It's so interesting because speaking of back in the 80s, I'd like to say that I feel like we've come farther in our communication ability. Like we don't look at people like they have a scarlet letter on them when something happens to them particularly something that's completely out of their control. Would you say that you agree with that, that people in general can just talk about things more openly than they could then? Definitely, especially the topic of infertility and adoption. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm still some t- often shocked sometimes what people will say. I'm like, why would you say like that? But um, yeah, my mom just, I asked my mom, you know, why, why did you, not ever talk about it. And she said, cause no one ever asked me. And I thought, oh. see, so as, oh, see, I'm going to be emotional because that, that kills me because yeah. I know, like, I know the pain that I went through. So knowing that my mom went through that pain too, is really sad right. to me. And my dad just had a lot of anger. You know, he was just angry. Um, it happened. Yeah. Cause he couldn't protect, you know, right. Normal yeah. human emotions that we go through, But it really is so helpful to have another person who's maybe strong in their faith to help you wrestle through some of that so that you're not necessarily ascribing this to God's lack of love or concern for you. Right. Yeah. And my dad, you know, he, he's, he's a fixer. So he, Mm -hmm. he was like, he would probably admit this today. He, he just wanted to get back at someone. If, if, if a doctor did this to me, he wanted to sue him. If he, oh, it was just like, yeah. he just wanted like a, an ending to it. But, you know, as a family, we did go on. Um, we didn't mm-hmm. really ever talk about it ever. Wow. Um, not until I was like 21 years old. So we just sort of pushed it aside and went back to what we thought normal was, which was, I was still doing dancing. My dad was still fishing. You know, we got back to our normal life. Yeah. Um, and, and in some respects, I appreciate that more than anything. Right. Um, other respects, it was probably a little bit detrimental to my spiritual and mental health, I would say. Right, right. down in my 20s. Well, and that's what I was going to ask. I mean, so even all through high school, did you continue to think, oh, maybe God didn't love me that much? Or were you a typical high schooler and just basically I'm going to ignore that any of this happened to me and I'm just going to live my life now. 
you know, what did that look like until it came crashing down in your 20s? Yeah. So I was very much a typical high schooler in the sense that I was outgoing. I love, I had, you know, social life was really important. I had friends. Um, I liked to see what the newest fashion trends were, (laughs) all of it It was the eighties. Right. Um, but I, I think there was kind of like two sides to me. That was the side that I think I, I sort of thought the world expected of me. Um, my nickname when I was young was a little trooper. And that's what wow. you're, you're just a little trooper. And they would say that to me every time I had to go to the hospital or you're just a little trooper. So in my head, I'm like, well, I'm a little trooper. I'm just going to be strong because that that's what I have to be is strong. Yeah. So I did all the stuff in high school that kids in the eighties do, you know, I went out, had friends, went to dances, all that stuff. But I um, really thought I would never be loved by someone yeah. like who would want a, who would want a wife that couldn't have babies, you know? Yeah. So, and things now you understand, no one ever said this to me. These were just thoughts that mm-hmm. I, you know, I, not- I think our own worst enemy are uh, sometimes is our own flesh and yes. the, the lies that we speak over ourselves, um, are very, very dangerous. Yes. And, you know, and I think there's so much spiritual warfare that goes on with that as yes. well. Absolutely. Um, I know. I feel like I should call that for what it is because I know the words I said to myself, are not ones that come from God, that came from God. That's right. You know, that's right. So most people I went to high school with did not know. I went to a pretty large high school for where we lived. Um, but most people did not know. Some of my few of my friends knew, but Mm. a lot of people did not know. As a matter of fact, as I started blogging about it, being on social media about it, I have had friends from high school be like, I had no idea. Like, um, you had gone through all this, you know, it's like, I always had to have a plan. I wanted to be in control. Like I couldn't control that part of my life. So mm-hmm. I had to control what I could be in control of, which was yeah. you're going to go to college. You're going to get a job. You're going to be independent. Um, you're probably not going to get married anyway. So um, you need to be able to take care of yourself. Like That's, it was sort wow. of that tunnel vision to not, not even focus on anything else. Well, so what happened in your twenties that, what do you think really triggered everything to come crashing down for you? Did you meet your husband then? Yes. Uh, Gosh, the twenties, it was in, it was in the early nineties, which was a fantastic, fantastic time period and decade. Um, (laughs) I would go back. I think I would go back to that time period again, but, um, I think I would too, friend. (laughs) Especially right now. Right. It'd be nice to go back there for a little while. Um, I, uh, started having friends from high school that, that were getting married. And so I was starting to get wedding invitations in the mail, baby announcements, baby shower invitations in the mail. Um, I also at age 20 on my 20th birthday, lost my left ovary, my sole survivor ovary to assist, um, had to be removed. So I had to start on hormone replacement therapy. Mm -hmm. So it was just, again, this reminder of like, well, you're not even female. I mean, you have to have a hormone to, you know, keep you female. And again, this is in my mind. I'm thinking this, right? right? right. So it was a combination of that, that experience, plus just my friends getting married, having babies. It was like, every time I got something in the mail about it, it was just a reminder of what I couldn't have. Mm. And I know that seems really selfish to think that way, but that's just the reality. That's just how I felt like, well, yeah. And I was, I worked part-time when I was in college and, um, I was at my desk. I was a mail clerk and I was at my desk and I was just sitting there and it just, 
everything just came crashing in. I mean, literally had an emotional breakdown and I went to my supervisor who thankfully knew me growing up some. So she kind of knew a little bit of my history. And I said, I need to call my parents and come pick me up. And she's like, okay, you should let me go right then. And I got in the car and I just had a total breakdown. And um, my mom and dad said, you know, we have been waiting for this moment for 10 years. Wow. Um, And so we all sat there together and cried in the car and um, talked about it and stuff. And, uh, you know, once I kind of had that experience, I started talking with them more about it. After I got that out, I shoved it back down in again and I stopped talking about it because then I need to focus back on school and, and all that. But I could tell like each year in my 20s, as I was getting older, it was getting harder. I really just needed to know why, like what was going to be the outcome of this? I'm not really a black and white thinker. I definitely think more in the gray on a lot of mm-hmm. subjects. But for this in particular issue, I needed to know a concrete answer. Why was this for my life kind of deal? Yeah. And I had been in a few relationships, but nothing serious and definitely nothing very healthy. Now this this is where it gets kind of shady, not not in a bad way. It's kind of interesting. I actually met my husband because I was dating one of his friends. So <laughs> he just we start off as friends, and um, you know I would say things to him like, "Well, this guy I was dating at the time broke up with me," and I said to my now husband, "You know I don't understand what you know." What, what is wrong with me? And he's like, there's nothing wrong with you. You mm. just deserve, you deserve better. So I kept him around as a friend because he was a great guy as a friend. Right. And then uh, the more that we, I got to know him and stuff, the more that we realized we were in love with each other mm. and kind of how I knew was I had told them that, um, that I had had dreams growing up that I was at, at my walking down the aisle And, um, to get married and my husband walks away and says, I'm sorry, I can't do this. I can't marry someone who can't have a baby. Uh, He knew. Yeah, he knew. Yeah. Cause I was friends with him and, and we, he was like the only guy I could really talk to about it. Yeah. And, uh, he had said to me that night, like that, you know, when you love someone and you marry someone, you love them for all of who they are, Mm. you know, not not just that one aspect. And so for me, that was like the moment I thought, oh, this guy might be worth keeping around. Like <laughs> um, that was not because, diff- you know, I, I had talked with a, f- a few guys about it that I thought maybe we could get serious, move in that direction. And it was always just like, well, maybe you should go talk to a pastor about it. Well, uh, you know, it was always like they dismissed it. And my husband, he, you know, he didn't mind talking about it. It at this point, are you still wrestling with God? Is he still very much a part of your life? Like, where is your faith at this point? Yeah. So my faith was definitely in the backseat. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was in the driver's seat completely Yeah. because I could do it to where I wouldn't get hurt. You know, like I wanted to be in control. Um, I did not, I would, was not going to church at all, had not been to church in years, but I still believed in God and I still believe in Jesus. I still consider myself a Christian. I just wasn't fully sold yeah. on this idea. You weren't really walking with him. No. He was just no. kind of something you knew about and you said, okay, I believe you. And that's about it. Yes, definitely. And I, you know, I felt like a, that jilted daughter, you know, like I want to have a relationship with you, but I don't trust you fully. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just going to keep an arm's length away. And that's kind of how I was like an arm's length away. So my husband and I, we just, we got married and that about 
six to seven months before we got married or so, um, I was really struggling with infertility. I, I, I call it infertility. I, I've called it barrenness. It's, right. I guess, medically speaking, I'm not technically infertile, but um, anyway, I, I was really struggling with it. And it's like, I had tried all these things. I got, you know, I got a good education. I got married. I got a job. I have dogs. Like I tried everything to fill my life, not having, you know, why does this pain keep coming up? And I said to my aunt, I I think I'm, I think I need to go back to church. I think Mm. that's what needs to happen. And so she invited me to church with her. And um, it was sort of in that moment that I, it was like, I it literally felt like I was the only, the only person in the, in the room, you know, like everything. I totally was, know. I get like emotional, everything that was said, every song that was saying was like hitting me right where my pain was in a good way. Yeah. That's really what kind of reconnect, reconnected me, I think to my faith. Cause I realized really, I was in the, I was the one that walked away, mm-hmm. you know, Jesus never walked away from God, never walked away from me. I, I walked away, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I wasn't instantly healed from the pain. I mean, there was still obviously right. lots of, but I just felt like, like he was padding it a little bit for me, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think sometimes, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, if this is not true for you, once we finally acknowledge that aspect of, okay, God did not leave me. He has not forsaken me. The pain that you experience knowing that he's actually walking with you it's like you said, a padding, but it's almost like you really do feel him carrying some of the burden. Yes. And so it's still there. You can still see it and feel it, but you know that you're not doing it alone. Mm -hmm. It's a different perspective. And so that's the thing for you, carrying this label of barrenness or infertile, however um, other people want to view it can be really heavy, but God did fill your life with children. Mm-hmm. You know, what drew you and your husband? You're together. You've had this experience, you know, at church, you feel like you're growing in your faith again. What kind of led you to begin foster parenting? Well, I didn't get married until I was 29, which is funny because I remember as a 16 year old telling my mom, I will not be married until I'm at least 29. That's hilarious. Um, yeah. Again, I was 28 and I don't know about you, but I felt like I was ancient then. Well, I just, I, <laughs> that was just the way I was going to control it. I was going to be 29 and though I didn't have a biological talk, uh, clock ticking anyway. So why not? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I was 29 and my husband was 30, almost 34 when we got married. And so we've been married about four and a half years or so, almost five years. And, um, we're like, okay, now he's pushing 40. I'm 35. Like if we're going to do this, we need to do this. And so I had met um, a little girl in a, uh, at the time I was a case manager working in child welfare, which again, I had no plans on working with children. Um, the God was like, oh yeah, you do. <laughs> you <know? laughs> And I ended up actually being assigned to work in the field of adoption, which was like, are you kidding me? It's like I was being forced to deal with it, you know, of all people for this position, you hired me, but I needed a job. And looking back now, you know, faith, it's so much easier to look back at things Mm -hmm. in the rearview mirror through the lens of faith because you're like, ah, yes, that's where you connected those dots, you know? That's right. That's right. That's how we see his faithfulness. That's right. But I met a little girl in a, in a foster home and I, this is seems so naive to say this. And I like, 
cringe when I hear other people say it, but I honestly felt like she was meant to be my daughter. Like I went home and I said, I think, I, I think I met our daughter today. And my husband's like, what? I'm like, I think I met our daughter today. And so we end up finding out that um, she was going to be available for adoption. So we hurried up and got into classes and all this stuff. And then um, about five or so months into our process, she ended up being placed into another family for adoption. And everything just came crushing down on me like, okay, God, thank you for pulling the rug out for me again. I finally got brave enough to sign up for these classes. And then this happens. Um, but that's okay. You know, um, we, we ended up continuing the process and got a call about a baby um, that needed a home. Um, so for us, it was just more of a, it was a combination of things, just talking about it forever. Oh gosh, are we going to do this? Are we going to do this? And then finally decided to do it. And then me meeting this little girl that really kind of pushed us to that point of saying, right. yeah, we're going to do it. Yeah. And so the little girl was placed with you, right? No, no, she was not. She was, she was in a home that I, I, it was in a foster home that I had, had worked in before. Okay. My job. Yeah. And so then who did end up, I mean, eventually you ended up fostering two children, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And did they come to you as babies? They did. Yeah. So we, um, we were licensed the day that we got licensed as a foster home, we got a call about our old, now oldest son. And it was one of those, Hey, this is so-and-so from the state of Missouri. Um, we have a baby in the hospital. Could you be available today? Um, if the judge brings his child in. So we're like, sure. You know, it wasn't that easy of an answer. I mean, we knew we wanted to do it, but it was more like, sure. You know, like, oh, yes. <laughs> um, and, uh, it was, 4.30, he calls back, can you be at the hospital within about 20 minutes? So we went from being like, never been parents to, especially a newborn, to driving to the hospital to get a newborn baby and bring him home, which is an extremely surreal experience. I can uh, only imagine. <laughs> uh, we didn't have anything. We had nothing. Car seat, formula, and that was it, really. But we fostered him for close to two years before we were able to adopt. And mm -hmm. that in itself was such a wonderful experience um, working with his biological mom and oh, wow. uh, really seeing the whole picture, which I had no working in child welfare. I knew that re reunification is the number one goal. And I totally respected that goal. And, yes. and we, and we wanted that, you know, it's one of those things where it's heartbreaking because you just don't know and you can't help but get attached. You need to get attached for the child's sake. That's right. So you're constantly on this roller, this roller coaster of emotion. Like I want her to get her life together. Oh my gosh. I love this child so much, but I want her to get her life together. But I love this child so much, mm. but you know, about three months into that process, I was literally crying and praying in front of his crib whenever he was sleeping in his crib. And mm. I just said to God, you know, your, your, your will, not mine. Yeah. And I feel like the Lord answered me with the words, this is not about you, Caroline. Yeah. I, you know, this isn't about you. So with sort of that experience of fostering, that's also when I started thinking about my medical history of barrenness, thinking, you know, I grew up thinking, why me? Why me? Why me? Why me? And then once I started fostering and seeing the impact we had on this other family and this child... <sighs> I realized, you know, why not me? Yes. You know, why not me? So we were, we were able to adopt him. He is now 14. He'll be wow. 15 this year and it's killing me. <laughs> Just killing oh. me. He's like my first baby. I mean, I love my other two kids, but you know. No, my first listen, mine's only 10, my oldest. And I mean, yeah. Sam, my husband will say, you almost have him out the door already. And I'm like, 
because he doesn't even hug me as me. You know I mean, like I know. Oh, <laughs> and I'm super close with my oldest son, yes. and so there is. It's just hard. It is hard to watch them grow up. But I know I'm like only like three and a half years until he's an adult. Like, oh and you know, I still, and it's one of those things because we went through so much when before and while we were fostering him and on the day of our adoption, those memories are still so um, impactful to me. Like, it's like, but sometimes I feel like, well, we just got through adopting him. It's what I feel mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. you know, cause it's so impactful and special, but then, you know, he can, um, he'll be able to drive soon. <laughs> I know. Well, and that's the funny thing we say too. We're like, you know, remember when you thought only the old people looked at you and <laughs> said, yeah, Oh, treasure these moments. They go by fast. And now I'm like, oh my gosh, we're the old people because now we're like, enjoy those toddler years. Like, I know. Well, and so you're middle, you you have three kids. Uh And so, how did you end up adopting the other two? Yeah. So, about we kind of went on hold for about six months after our experience with our oldest son after adoption you know, just all of it. We just need to, to breathe and be mm-hmm. what I would say as normal as a foster family can feel. <laughs> and so we did respite a couple times where you just help out another family by watching another kid for them. And around about two weeks before Christmas, my, um, see here, he was almost three, um, came to us and said, Santa Claus is going to bring us a baby girl for, uh, uh Santa Claus is going to bring me a baby sister for Christmas. And I was like, Oh, sweetie, I don't think Santa Claus can do that this year. (laughs) (laughs) But sure enough, the week after Christmas, um, the state called and said, Hey, there's a a baby girl that's in a foster home who um, the foster family is not going to be a permanent option. Um, We are looking for more of a permanent placement for this child. Wow. He's a little um, profit. (laughs) I know. I know. They, they gave us about a week to think about it. And it, it was just more of those, are we, are we ready for this again? Like, cause once, you know, we're, once you say yes, and you gotta be all you in, sh- you need to, yeah, you gotta be all in. And plus our f- extended family, they were all just like, oh no, we don't know if we're ready for this again. Cause they all fell in love with our oldest son. And, Absolutely. you know, that's something that fostering, I, hope more people realize is it's, it's not just the foster family's hearts that get broken sometimes in it. It's, it's the other people around them too. So we said yes. And, um, her situation was a lot different than my oldest son's. So we were able to adopt her when she was about 15 months. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So she, you know, her foster parent brought her over and she showed up on our doorstep. And so our, two and a half year old opened up the door and there's a baby sister. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, again, very surreal. And so we were like, okay, now we have a baby girl in our house. Yeah. Um, and so, but her case was definitely different. We yeah. were able, um, we adopted her when she was a little bit younger than our oldest son. Yeah. Um, and then after that, you know, we thought about continuing, but we vote like my husband is an only child and I do have a sister who's about six or so years older than me. So it sort of felt like I was an only child, especially yes. in my, as I got older. So we felt like two, a boy and a girl. And the fact that we actually adopted the only two children that we fostered, mm-hmm. which doesn't really happen that often. I mean, usually people foster for a while. We just felt like, man, we are so fortunate 
we decided to close our license and close that chapter in our lives. And I just had this feeling, I I just, this feeling that I was, there was going to be another kid. I didn't know who. And so once you adopt in foster care, typically, if for some reason, another family member comes into custody that belongs to a child that you fostered, you will get the call. So I thought, well, maybe there's going to be another sibling born, that kind of deal. But in 2012, I had a relative who um, was really struggling in addiction mm-hmm. and homelessness, and she gave birth to a baby boy. And I watched her grow up. Um, I was really close to her family and stuff. And so he was not brought into custody, but he was what they call diversion, where they place with family members. Yeah. And unfortunately, he was bounced ar- around a lot from different family members. And so finally, when he was about seven months old, my husband and I uh, petitioned for guardianship of him because yes. he needed to not bounce around. So we were like the fifth setting he lived in by the age he was seven months old. Right. And a few months into us having him, uh, my cousin said, will you guys adopt him? And so we did. So we had our kind of our surprise adoption of our third child that I, I just I had a feeling and I, I even had a feeling it was going to be a boy. Like, I just felt like God was just saying, just, you know, no, there's going to be one more, you know, there's going to be one more. And I kept some of my daughter's clothing, but I kept a lot more of my son's clothing, which was so interesting, isn't it? I know. Um, so, yeah. So my youngest son literally wore almost every outfit my oldest son wore because <laughs> I had all these clothes. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. fantastic. I have to tell you though. So my two oldest were like, by the time he came around, they were six and four. And then we had the seven month old and both of them kept saying, oh, well, we're going to get twins next. We're going to get twins next because in their world, <laughs> show up on your doorstep. Right. I mean, that's just how it works. And I was like, no, we are not getting twins next. And I'm thinking, please, please, Jesus. <laughs> no, I, I'm no not twins. having this feeling <laughs> now that now that we're we're older, old enough to recognize our limitations. I mean, I would love for there to be another baby baby in this house. Don't get me wrong. I would love it, especially twins. I'm like, Oh, maybe, you know, but then I'm thinking, no, Caroline, you're like, you guys are beyond that. I know exactly what you're saying. It's true. It's funny though, how in your heart, you can kind of know a little bit when you're finished. Mm -hmm. Um, I always encourage people like, if you don't feel that your family is complete, like, don't let it be, (laughs) you know, I mean, like look into that, whether it's from you adoption, foster, whatever that is, that feeling is usually there for a reason. And so you have worked in the child welfare system Mm -hmm. for a very long time and gone through just so many things with fostering adoption, just knowing the ins and outs. What are some of the positive changes that you feel like you've seen in the area of just the child welfare system in general in the last 20 years? Oh, goodness. Um, I'm so glad that you asked for the positive changes because sometimes we focus so much on the negative that can happen within the system. And there are a lot of negatives within the system. But for the positives, I've seen at least, and I can really only speak to the area that I live in. in. And I'm I'm hoping and thinking that it might be relevant for other states as well. But um, more of a push for keeping siblings together. Yeah. uh, Larger sibling groups. There has been more pushing towards placing with family members when suitable and appropriate. I've seen more just more awareness of child welfare system in general of child abuse and neglect i think part of that is 
is one of the good things we can say about social media Yeah, is that people are becoming more aware of these issues. That's right. Um, I've seen a lot more church engagement happening mm-hmm. in the past 20 years. You know, it was always when I first started it and, and this, this wasn't true for every church, but it sometimes felt like us versus them. Like, well, you know, especially because I, and I worked for the state. So it definitely wasn't us felt like an us versus them. Oh, kind of and deep. we should just be partners. Yeah. And that has definitely, I mean, so much so to like our state has like church initiatives for foster parenting. I mean, I work for a Christian child welfare agency that works very heavily with the state and partnerships. So, so there's definitely been more of that focus as well. I also think trauma informed care yes. has come to the forefront, which is vital. I think yes. I've had people ask me, well, what, what would you recommend us do? You know, we're, we're considering foster parenting. My very first words are make sure you research trauma-informed care, mm-hmm. read everything, get your hands on it, go to training, you know, cause it's, it's so important. Well, and my, my sister-in-law um, and brother-in-law, when they brought their daughter home, actually from India, they, they were missionaries there. And, but I mean, it's been a long time ago. And so when they were learning about like reactive attachment disorder and, you know, I mean, she was doing some of the groundwork because there just wasn't hardly anything out there. And now you can say that. And a lot of people, at least if they've had any involvement or read at all about foster care, you've heard that diagnosis a little bit, but then, I mean, it was like, what are you talking about? So you're so right in that. So, yeah. So, I mean, those are, those are some of the positives I've seen. Well, and so in regards to this, I mean, and we're going to close out with this. Is there anything that you would really like to see the body of Christ do better in this area? I mean, it's so vital for us. It's Mm -hmm. so as someone who is a believer and who also works and knows the system well, um, what would you say to that? Gosh, it's, I mean, there's so many things I think that all of us could do better. Um, and since we are the church, <laughs> I'm including right. myself in that as well. A couple of things come to mind. Number one would be not maybe, and this is, a, I shouldn't say number one, because it doesn't really matter what order, but I think just an outpouring of even more grace is needed mm. for people that work within the system, for attorneys, for judges, for the biological parents, just loads and loads of grace. Um, I, I make the mistake sometimes whenever there's a local article on maybe a child abuse case, I make the mistakes of reading the comments hmm. and it's really heartbreaking and not that people should not be held accountable, but it always feels like, you know, I've been on both sides. I've been a foster parent, adoptive parent, and I also work in the system. Like mm-hmm. we're human, you know, we, <laughs> we get attached to these kids too. You know, we, our heart breaks for these situations as well. So I think just the outpouring of grace towards people that work within the system Mm -hmm. and pray, praying for people in the system. It's a tough field to work in. I don't know how I've made it for 20 years. I think I've just gotten past that point to where I I can do it now, you know? Um, So definitely grace also. So the word orphan is biblical. I don't think there's Mm -hmm. anything wrong with that word. Mm -hmm. Um, However, I do think maybe taking what we might call an orphan ministry in our churches and evolving that to the point to where that actually includes at-risk intact families, um, where that includes working, mentoring, ministering to birth parents whose children are in custody, where that includes bringing older youth who are in the system who maybe have some struggles 
probably do have some struggles and maybe they don't fit the mold of what you expect them to be, but bring them to the table, um, start working with them. So it's sort of an expansion of orphan care because it feels like sometimes when people call and they're like, well, I'm part of an orphan ministry team and we want to help people adopt. It's like, that's the only, the only focus is on adoption. Mm -hmm. And trust me, I, I love adoption. Clearly I love adoption. Right. But that should not be our goal. No. So in those areas, I can see a greater need for the church to get involved. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, and I want to ask you only because I just interviewed someone recently who in our area, and I know it's a national thing, but it's not maybe in every single state or location, but Safe Families mm -hmm. is an organization where I just interviewed um, the director of our Raleigh area, because I feel like they're doing what you're talking about in the sense of it's an at-risk family that comes to them. And so, you know, you're, you have a family that would be, I'm going to take on this child for just a couple of weeks while maybe this person is um, trying to, you know, get a job or they're trying to secure a place to live or whatever. So that's one thing. So I don't know if you've heard of safe families, but um, in our area, it feels like they're doing amazing work. Yeah. And we're definitely seeing that more innovative um, thinking about it, more programs that are offered, better community support. I know it's very cliche to say it, but it absolutely takes a village. You know, it just, it does. And as far as being trauma-informed, I think trauma-informed care um, belongs in every school system and every courthouse, even ones that deal with adults, because trauma start can be in childhood and it is in childhood. And that goes into our adulthood. That's right. I mean, there's a lot of us who need to basically work back through that trauma and now they're adults and it's just continuing the cycle. So that's a good perspective. Yeah. So I think for the church, you know, to recognize that, you know, yes, you are called to do this. And if you, if you say, and I've actually said this to somebody before, in a nice way. <laughs> I said, if you, if you say that you're going to call foster parenting a ministry, then you need to act like Jesus. <laughs> like, oh, wow. um, if you're going to call it that, then that's what it needs to be. So for me, if a church is going to call this a foster, foster care ministry or an orphan care ministry, whatever they want to call it, then they need to embrace that for what it is, that it's mm-hmm. not going to feel good all the time your private, your heart's broken as well. You may even get angry and that's okay. It's okay. But you're doing this, you know, God doesn't do us, call us to do easy things. He calls us to do hard, hard things. And we mm. can't walk away from that calling just because it starts feeling hard, you know? Amen to that you know? for sure. So tell us if someone wants to connect with you, where can they do that? So my um, blog is barren to blessed.com. And then on Facebook, I'm also at Baron to Blessed. And on Instagram, I'm Baron to Blessed. <laughs> um, it's just a name that I kind of came up with on a whim, to be honest with you. Uh, and it just kind of stuck. So um, that's where you can find me on Facebook and Instagram. My email is Baron to Blessed at Gmail. So I often get emails from people around the United States, also around the world, just asking me questions, which I just want to add is such an incredible bonus point, I think, to all of this, because growing up, I thought I would never talk about to anybody. And now I have people from, I mean, the Middle East, people from Australia. I'm talking in talks with someone from uh, Europe right now. Just incredible. I know it is really incredible. 
just asking me, is it okay that I feel this way? And, you know, who they are, they themselves are walking through infertility, just to be able to like minister to them. Um, it just proves to me that God can take any story and turn it around. Absolutely. Well, Caroline, thank you so much for sharing your story and for the work that you do. I'm grateful that you were with me today. Great. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So did someone pop in your mind while listening to Caroline? Will you pause and share this episode with them? Did something Caroline say resonate with you? If yes, will you share it with me? You can do that by sending me a direct message on Instagram or leaving a comment on this week's episode post at graceenoughpodcast underscore Amber. You can also send me an email at graceenoughpodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time.